Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO, a loose discussion of travel, adventure, diving, driving, gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 263, and it's proudly brought to you by our ever-growing TGN supporter crew. We thank you all so much for your continued support. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit thegreynado.com for more details. James, how's it going? Speaking of uh, subscriber uh, crew or supporter crew, you've got some a little update, don't you? Yeah, we've got we got a little bit of news. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, a little little fried from uh, a week in Dubai, but we can get to that in a minute. You know, with this episode, I think we're officially into the what will be the start of our third year of the supporter system. So, for those of you who don't support, or maybe you know, we we mention it, but no, not always the specifics. Um, through Substack, which is where we publish the show notes and other goodies. You can subscribe to the show for either $5 a month or 100 bucks a year. There's kind of different uh, benefits to, to each level. And we want to put out a little challenge because we'd like to grow the show enough that we could afford to do video, which will require a video editor. We'd like to be able to publish our conversations as YouTube videos and, and, and do that kind of stuff and kind of expand a little bit so that folks who'd rather watch uh, can do so. And so currently, after a couple years of doing this, we're just shy of about 1,500 subscribers. And Jason and I have decided that we can commit to doing video uh, when we hit 2,000 subscribers. So if you're listening and you're interested in video, and this might be enough of a value add to push you over into the subscriber crew uh, platform, uh, check it out at thegraynado.com. If we can hit that goal sometime in the next little while, foreseeable future, uh, we would like to start publishing video versions of these episodes, uh, which I think could be pretty fun. Yeah, I think so too. I'll have to uh, comb my hair occasionally and, uh, you know, up my office game. Um, but uh, I, that's definitely going to be worth it if, if it comes to that. I'd love to do that. Yeah, me too. Um, so with that out of the way, uh, a huge thank you to everybody who has been supporting the show for the last couple of years. It's always exciting to see the annual subscribers kind of re-up for another year. It's this kind of vote of confidence that we uh, we didn't drop the ball too bad uh, the previous year. <laughs> but let's be clear, I have dropped a ball uh, this year. Uh, so an, another bit of show news is that we're going to be doing a Q&A December marathon. So currently we're three episodes of our Q&A short. Uh, that'll be for September, October, and November, which would bring us to December, and the December episode would come up early January. So I do want to get back on that cadence and get caught up. So over the next few weeks, uh, those of you who have the TGN crew uh, sort of private uh, podcast feed, we'll start to see uh, probably weekly Q&As on top of the show. So a little bit of extra content for your holiday driving, for your uh, you know time wrapping gifts and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, we will we will make up those three episodes. We're recording one of them right after this, so expect to see those. Uh, really, the first one uh, for September will come up in just the next few days. So thanks so much for your patience on that one. And, and also, uh, thanks so much for everybody being cool about us taking last week off. Um, I'm not sure I would have put together a coherent episode after a week <laughs> in Dubai. Uh, the jet lag was remarkable and very trackable thanks to my new aura ring oh yeah uh, reminding me just how dead tired and broken <laughs> my body was yeah but uh, dubai was a was a trip uh you know very much felt like um i guess the thing it would remind me most would be like when we did um or when i did uh watches and wonders miami years ago oh just right before the pandemic yeah where obviously warm weather and uh, and all the brands all in kind of one space in a space that felt loosely like retail environments, but they mm. weren't actually selling anything. Yeah, uh, it was it was fascinating. Met a lot of very interesting people. Saw a lot of the old 
friend group that you really only see, you know, at, at either watch events or major trade fairs, that sort of thing. I would say largely it was good. I would also say it was probably too long for me to be <laughs> in Dubai. Yeah, that was a long trip. A you know, that would be the longest long. trip yeah. of my year yeah. uh, at, at six nights. But I had a really good time. And uh, a quick shout out to Romaine for a really lovely hangout. We had a couple folks on the TGN Slack that were in the area and, and up for a hangout. And when we finally, the dust settled, uh, it ended up only being Romaine. So we had a really nice couple of beers at uh, the Waldorf where I was staying. And he brought out some some really awesome watches. And, and we had a nice chat. So, uh, Romaine, thank you so much for that. It was a, a treat to meet you and uh, to... Uh, have a hospitable sort of face in uh, in Dubai of you know the it, the, the slack thing really kind of gives you an instant friend or two pretty yeah. much anywhere uh, which is awfully nice so uh, yeah. look forward to many more hangouts in 2024 uh, we're going to try and make that another priority for the show on top of eventually hitting our video goal and that sort of thing so yeah very cool yeah it looked it looked like quite the extravaganza I saw you know I was following a lot of people that were there you, you know you included and uh, you know there was everything from you know, some, some really exotic rare watches to some trips into the desert and then the flooded streets. I mean, how mm-hmm. was that? Was that just the, crazy flood, that the flooding was wild. I mean, cause I woke up in the middle of the night because the window panes in the hotel were moving. Oh my gosh. Um, as the water kind of lashed, like the rain kind of lashed wow. against them. And then, yeah. uh, it woke up that morning. I, I had basically, and I do this when I, when I book stuff in Geneva as well, I don't really start in the morning. Mm-hmm. It, the later I sleep, the closer I stay to my home time zone. Yeah, and with a nine-hour time difference, I figured it'd be great if I only had to actually account for say six of it, which would take me about a week when I got home to mm-hmm. feel normal again. Yeah, and so I was not getting up early, and I woke up at I don't know eleven. There had been an email several hours earlier saying like, yeah, the, the show's essentially canceled for today, or at least <laughs> like sit tight. Yeah, a couple of the booths didn't survive the like one of the rest a restaurant one of the two restaurants that they like pop-up restaurants got destroyed oh, no. um the bulgari booth took a real beating and they put they had it right back together by about two o'clock so the, wow. the show resumed that afternoon and uh and it, w- it was good but it was wild to sit like i was sitting with you know blake from warren and wound and Bilal and <laughs> Oren and mark Koslerich and we were just hanging out, uh, you know, on the 18th floor of this hotel, looking down at kind of the main road yeah. through this part of Dubai. And it was under a foot of water and you're just watching like Ferrari and then 12 G wagons and then, uh, <laughs> you know, a Rolls Royce drophead, like a phantom drophead, just cruising through pushing a bow wake. And you're like, all right, this is kind of <laughs> rad. But yeah, it was that was exciting to see see the the kind of the way that because they don't really have road the roads aren't designed to pull water off of them so it's just water just goes to the low point yeah so it was remarkable to see how well they were able to you know dry the space out and get everyone back back up and going and yeah. and that sort of thing and then the the last thing I wanted to bring up about Dubai and I wrote a story for Hodinki so I'll put it in the show notes but I witnessed the single best like watch talk of my entire time in watches. Oh yeah, right. And and don't get me wrong, for years I have literally just ignored these. If you go to a, sh- a show where there's presentations or panels, I typically like unless it's somebody I know and love in the panel or a topic that I feel I need to write about, I just skip them because I know they're like I seldom find them that interesting. Mm-hmm. But I went to this one, and it, it was a, a, a one-man talk, like essentially a lecture from a guy named Stephen McDonnell. And Stephen McDonnell is a watch, is an independent watch movement designer, a watchmaker. And most recently, he's done his most high-profile work with MB&F. 
including the Evo Sequential, uh, which won a GP, GPHG Grand Award and you know did some stuff that hadn't really been done before. Pretty remarkable piece of watchmaking. And I'm not going to give the whole tone of the talk away. Uh, I just suggest I have it embedded in the video. I have the video embedded in the story on Hodinkee. So I'll just hit the show notes and watch the whole thing. Please take an hour. If you have an hour for TGN, you definitely have an hour to listen to Steven. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And you can watch the whole thing uh, streamed uh, thanks to the folks at Dubai Watch Week. They, they recorded all of them and put them on YouTube. So uh, that's there. And I really genuinely highly recommend it. Like with, as strongly as I've recommended anything in final notes recently. Um, I would say check this out, and I didn't want to bury it in at the end. Yeah, um, yeah. of the show, but check it out. It's 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 pretty fantastic. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. I mean, there was there were just so many kind of insights. Uh, you know, the watchmaking part was great and all fascinating stuff. But like the insight into the mind of somebody that that truly is a watchmaking genius, and his name has popped up over the years just in various ways. I think he worked with Bremont for a while, and of course MBNF, and he's he's just. Uh, yeah, to to hear him talk was was mm-hmm. was a rare experience, akin to you know listening to, you know, like someone like Gordon Murray or you know some someone someone a, a genius in their space. Uh, just really really fascinating. Yeah, totally had a bit of like a Howard Hughes vibe yeah. to a certain part of it. Yeah, um, true. Which I, I found really kind of fascinating. But yeah, other than that, I you know I got home and then over the trip uh, I didn't end up cracking into Sweetwater. Uh, I had it on my Kindle and didn't start reading it and then had planned to on the plane. And then both times I got on the plane, I just like had these grand plans of working and reading and watching a movie. And I just laid down and fell asleep. (laughs) I was just very tired. (laughs) Uh, So since I've gotten home and started to rest up a little bit and um, and and that sort of thing, uh, I, I started reading Sweetwater and I had read a portion of it. And then I went back and restarted from the start again and I, I quickly realized because the Kindle tells you how quickly you're progressing that I was going to blow through it in like two sittings. <laughs> so I've made it like a conscious effort to not speed read the book and just kind of like really enjoy the details. I'm uh, I've got about a third of it left, uh, which I'll read tonight. And not only I'm very excited. That's like a, I, I always like looking forward to like some evening recreation and a book is is a, a really sweet way of doing it. But man, I got to say. I enjoyed Depth Charge. I genuinely did, but I'm really, really loving Sweetwater. This is a, a, a step ahead for sure. Well, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, I, look, I mean, like as with anything uh, professionally or personally or anything, you know, you you hope you improve with each iteration or everything you do. Of course. And, and uh, I, I do feel more confident about this book. I, I do feel like it was a bit of a step up. And and uh, to your point about reading it quickly, you know, I think if there's an improvement I want to make for the next book, and some people might not agree with this, but um I almost feel like I need to just start writing longer books, you know, just like add another hundred pages and, and keep people reading a little longer, but, uh, we'll see. I mean, you know, I, the one thing I liked about Fleming's books is they were, they were short. You could digest them in a couple of sittings, That's true. whatever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, when you, when you got to wait a year and a half or a couple of years between, uh, it is nice to have to spend more than a couple of days reading it. But, uh, well, that was like with the, with, with the Kim Sherwood one, mm-hmm. I blitzed that one. That was yeah. like two sittings. Yeah. Yeah, and now I look back on it and I think like, well, when I go to read the next one that comes out, yeah. And so the the Kim Sherwood one, you can we'll put that in the show notes. Is of course was a, a double or nothing, a Bond world, a sort of Bond universe uh, novel of which I think she's doing two or three. And we had her on the show uh, recently, and it was awesome. But I read that one so quickly, and now knowing that the you know the second one is around. I feel like I have to go back and read the first one because of how quickly I went yeah, through it. Yeah, uh, I didn't necessarily absorb it that well. So yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. And speaking of Sweetwater, I just another reminder to folks listening: uh, if you happen to be in the 
Minneapolis-St. Paul area this coming weekend. Uh, so this show goes up on, on a Thursday and, and Sunday, the 3rd of December, already into December, crazy, um, at Lake Monster Brewing in St. Paul from 1 to 3 p.m. I'm hosting a, a little bit of a, you know, kind of a launch party, so to speak, uh, signing some books, selling some books if, if people are so inclined to buy. Uh, I'll have some stickers to hand out and, uh, and there's good beer there. They even have a depth charge I IPA, which is, uh, which is just a fun, a fun bit of tie in. And I, I love that place. So come to Lake monster brewing one to 3 PM on Sunday. And one extra kind of little special thing that's just popped up is I will be doing a special watch giveaway drawing at the book event. So this is a brand new watch, like unworn brand new in the box, but also brand new as in just released as of this weekend. So very yeah, exciting. Not when we're recording. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I can't divulge what the watch is, but I assure you it's a very special piece and, uh, that will be, uh, we'll be giving one away on Sunday at the event, you know, via like a, a ticket handout, kind of a raffle style drawing. So, uh, if, if that's an extra enticement, would love to see you there. I will, uh, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not footing the beer, the bill for all the beer, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty cheap thrills there and they do have good, good beer and it should be a good time. So hope to see you there. And you can certainly send me a DM or a, uh, an email or, or hit me up on Instagram or whatever, if you have any questions about that. So anyway, that's the, that's the news on the book. That's great, man. Yeah. I, I hope everybody uh, that can show up does, and it's a nice outing. I wish I could be there. Um, but we'll certainly make it up at some point in, uh, in the new year. We we're working on some ideas for some hangouts and, yeah. and that sort of thing where we might put you and I actually in the same place rather than just on the same zoom. Yeah. Yeah. And then lastly, you've, you've got a little bit of uh, a little bit of news that's kind of close to our hearts from a product standpoint. Yeah, I would say, I mean, I think, you know, uh, you know, being that we're called the gray NATO, uh, it seemed like some fitting news at the top of the show. Uh, Phoenix straps, which was a, a UK maker of nylon sort of G10 or, you know, military style pull through straps, uh, is closing up shop. I, I read about this recently on the military watch resource. I wasn't aware of it. Um, but sure enough, uh, I guess the owner's retiring. He's been in, in the business for a very long time. I believe they started making straps back in the, in the thirties or forties and were kind of adopted by the UK Ministry of Defense is their, you know, official strap to go with dive watches and pilots watches and, and army watches. And, uh, you know, they were kind of the, the originator of the Admiralty gray NATO strap. And I have a pile of them that I swap in and out of watches. Uh, you know, they, they go in and out of favor with, with me and with other people. Uh, a lot of other players have come along, you know, we, we, we've, obviously have our own kind of version of it that we used to get through Ute and now we're buying independently. Uh, of course, crown and buckle, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can get NATO straps everywhere these days, but Phoenix was kind of there at the beginning and I still love their straps. They're kind of a stiffer nylon with a tight weave, welded seams, and just the perfect Admiralty gray, kind of that bluish gray tint. If you can get your hands on them, I, I think a few are still floating around, probably yeah. price going up on eBay these days. But um, if you've got them, covet them, hold on to them, love them. Uh, sorry to see Phoenix uh, close up shop, but uh, that's that's kind of some some sad news at the top of the show here. Yeah, one of my one of my first NATOs when, once I got into it, and uh, and very quickly I think uh, somebody just recommended, oh, these are like the actual ones that you you would get if you were yeah in the British military or something like that, um, yeah. or at least maybe at some time that was the case. Right, uh, and right. I still have two or three here. Um, yeah. They definitely informed the way that I prefer a thinner 
sort of tighter weave, not too shiny. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's uh, and sort of an end, end of an era to a certain extent. I'm kind of surprised somebody wouldn't kind of pick that business up, but maybe, <laughs> yeah. um, maybe, maybe there's too much in the market now yeah, for one right. one right. brand to kind of shine to the extent that like the name Phoenix would be worth something to a watch gecko or whatever. Right? True. Yeah. Just spitballing. But yeah. yeah, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see that just the exact same strap be continued. Um, they're just, mm-hmm. they're, they're great. They're, they have their flaws, but um, there's just nothing else like them. So yeah, too bad. All right. Well, speaking of straps, uh, you want to talk uh, wrist check? Yeah. I mean, I'll go first just because I'm going to piggyback on that news. I'm, I'm wearing uh, an Omega Seamaster reference 2254 that I got roughly a year ago from, from our buddy, Chris Soul. Uh, his name pops Soul. up a lot on the show, but uh, yeah, Chris sent me his moderator extraordinary, his uh, 2254 Seamaster, uh, which I wore quite a bit last winter. And then kind of things came up with Blancpains and Tudors and Breitlings and things over the course of the year and hadn't worn it in a while. And and when I heard the news about Phoenix, I thought, you know, what better watch to uh, the, than a, a an old Seamaster to throw mm-hmm. a Phoenix strap on. So I'm wearing it on actually a kind of a, a bond adjacent striped phoenix uh, strap so it's it's a darker nice. darker gray with the black stripes which i think looks better than kind of that lighter gray that you see a lot of times and it's uh yeah it goes well with the watch and you know having not worn this in a while and have been having worn a number of other watches recently you know the the fxd and the, the navitimer etc i'm just so struck by how thin this watch is i mean this these watches are just crazy thin you just don't get thin dive watches like this much anymore yeah, it's true. You you uh, you really don't, and I don't know if we mentioned it specifically, but when we did the the talk, or when we when I did the hangout in New Hope a couple weeks back, oh yeah, feels like longer than that pre Dubai. Yeah. <laughs> um, w- one of the folks that showed up brought a non AC version. Oh yeah, so th- that's the two two thirty dot five, I believe. Um, so that's the wave dial, but it has applied markers. It has an applied Omega logo and signature. Wow. And it has, um, like a, uh, a relief bezel rather than the black. Oh yeah. Aluminum insert. Yeah. Very cool watch. Hadn't seen one in a really long time and it's been stuck in my mind since I had it. So, uh, <laughs> those are, those are always a treat, but yeah, two, two, five, fours are amazing. Definitely a watch that, um, like for me, the, the Pelagos 39 scratches a similar itch. Yeah. Um, but talk about a, a golden era in the lineage, in the already impressive lineage of the Seamaster, the, mm-hmm. the 2254, the sword hand, that MOD look. Yeah. Whether it's the non-AC or or the 5.4 proper. Yeah. Good ones. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What do you have on? Uh, this week, uh, so uh, now, now with Dubai done, I am actually getting back to catching up on a, a ton of work that I've kind of delayed for more than a month, um, uh, for that project. And, uh, and so I'm wearing this citizen series eight GMT. I have six or seven hands-ons that need to be written kind of as soon as possible. So <laughs> wow. a JLC that I had two months ago, I think that story will be up by the time this episode comes out. That's the, um, Polaris chronograph, the new one, the new version of that one. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and then the next on my list was this uh, Citizen. So I have the Series 8 GMT. I think I actually talked about it in a wrist check, you know, six weeks ago or something, maybe even longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but Citizen loaned it to me and I keep kind of extending the loan because uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten around to taking the photos. Yeah. Um, but it's the uh, the steel version with the sort of Pepsi bezel and the blue dial. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm kind of warming up to it. Uh, there's elements of it that I really like. I, th- I think, as I mentioned in a previous episode, I'm not like crazy about the difference in the blue between the bezel and the dial. Oh, right. Uh, it's a very bright kind of cerulean blue for the dial. And then the, um, the bezel is a deep blue, like you'd expect on something 
adjacent to a you know sort of Pepsi colorway. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it, it really wears in in a very nice way on wrist. It's chunky and heavy and and feels very sturdy, but all in a way that doesn't feel too big necessarily. Yeah. So if this is a watch you're like curious about or, or wanted to know more, then stay tuned uh, to Hodinky probably in the next week ish from when this uh, when this episode drops. I should have uh, uh, hands on with uh, with the Citizen Series Eight GMT. It's it's becoming a, a a full-time passion just to keep keep on top of the good uh, GMT offerings these days. There's so much under $2500. These are about 1700 bucks. You you can really start with a, almost the exact same movement at like 700 bucks like we've talked about with the um Laurier Hydra. Yeah. And uh and yeah, so there's there's lots out there but uh having a good time wearing this one around since I've been home. And isn't it uh, I'd like to think it's it's related but it's probably more of a happy coincidence that we're seeing this uptick in really great travel watches um kind of in a year that that everybody's finally sort of getting back into the mode of of traveling after after the pandemic and and people kind of hunkered down at home for so long and um Mm -hmm. it it does seem to be like it's it's related it probably isn't but uh here here we have a lot of good travel watches these days and yeah I i had just read in the news that like this like i think sunday was and obviously with the holiday uh makes sense but it was the single biggest travel day at the minneapolis st paul airport yep. recorded in all time so people are definitely back on the road back in the air single single largest flying traveling day in the history of it being tracked in the states i want to say it was just just shy of three million people yeah flew somewhere wow. on sunday wow. Wow. 2.8 something like that or at least that's according to a meme i saw on instagram hmm. so crazy check your <laughs> check your facts if they yeah. matter yeah i think it was a busy, busy travel day as it always is right and yeah, the you know the other side of it, and we don't have to belabor this, is this is going to end up being a fairly long episode if I keep rambling. But it, it, over the course of the pandemic, several people that I work with moved away from oh yeah the you know the centralized time zone of say New York or mm-hmm. Toronto, and so I find that it, uh, uh, having um, having uh, the ability to to very quickly reference UTC and then Geneva and and that sort of thing can be quite quite helpful keeping on top of um i mean for me it's keeping on top of uh uh embargoes sure oh you true. know because it'll be yeah 8 p.m c-e-t which is 2 a.m e-s-t yeah you know, and then depending on who's <laughs> writing it and where if, if i say 2 p.m but this person's in chicago then it's 1 p.m right like right i, I wore the explore two to dubai and it was perfect yeah just a perfect watch yeah for that. yeah i could glance down and know what time it was for um, sarah my wife back home and, my, and the kids and mm-hmm. that kind of thing yeah and uh and it kind of suited the space well enough i mean i, I guess it's as close as a fancy watch that i have mm-hmm. i mean we, we were probably walking past multi-million dollar watches every couple of seconds yeah uh with the kind of stuff that people brought there and the fact that there's almost no crime yeah. So fairly safe place to say carry a crazy watch or carry several, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, a I'll always love a good GMT. But it's it's interesting how useful they can be even when you're not traveling. But I, yeah. I agree that it seems like more and more travels happening, and the GM the moment for the GMT uh, seems to be continuing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I like the idea of an embargo timer, like <laughs> like a complication. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just gotta keep on top of it. <laughs> right, right. Like I can't tell you how many times because maybe you don't know you can do this, but. I, I eventually learned that you can just type your time zone question into Google. Oh, sure. Like I can say 8 a.m. C-E-S, uh, you know, C-E-T is what time in L.A. And I don't yeah. actually have to think my way through the math. It'll just say the two times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which can be pretty helpful when the embargo breaks the date line. Like if it's. Oh, yeah, right. 
5 a.m. CET is 11 p.m. the night before ET, which is you know <laughs> 8 p.m. that same day before. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Regardless, like I said, rambling uh, back on the mic after a week off. Plenty seems seems I had plenty stuff to say. Um, yeah. You want to get into the main topic? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, you know, we we obviously uh, didn't record last week, but but you recorded, uh, and we've got kind of a kind of an interesting uh, chat that I think people would be pretty keen to listen to. Yeah, so today's today's little conversation is mostly about watchmaking, the future of watchmaking, and it, it comes based on the publishing of a story for Watchanista by a, a colleague and, and somebody from our, our part of the world, a, a Toronto-based writer and their editor-at-large, uh, Rhonda Rich. And I've known Rhonda for a long time. She's a fantastic watch journalist, also based in Toronto here. And we cross paths whenever there's a tutor launch. You end up at the boutique. Rhonda's there, or or you know I'm there, and that sort of thing. And uh, Rhonda wrote this great story about the kind of impending crisis of training within the watchmaking space. So as demand for watches has exploded in the last ten years, the training of watchmakers hasn't kept up. Hmm. And th- there's several reasons for that. It was it's a great article, as you'll learn from this chat. There's probably a second part of this article coming. Anyways, uh, Rhonda published that uh, that story, and I didn't even see it the day it came out. I got a text message from our good friend, our watchmaking correspondent, the man who answers all of my silly watchmaking <laughs> questions, Jason Gallup at Roldorf. He pinged me and said, this is an incredible article. It's something I really am passionate about. Is there any world in which maybe we could do a chat and we could dig it deeper into the topic and kind of talk it through even, you know, Watchanista has a huge audience to begin with, but maybe push a few more folks in that direction. And I said, hey, no problem. Let me reach out to Rhonda. We set up a time. And so this episode is uh, features a chat about the future of watchmaker training and the possible kind of deficit that we're facing, not only for sales, but for after sales, kind of both sides of that coin. And so we have uh, Rhonda Rich and Jason Gallup. Uh, for those of you who don't know Jason, he is a WoStep trained watchmaker and the proprietor of Roldorf & Co., an excellent AD and watch service business in Vancouver, Canada. A good friend of mine has been on the show several times for you longtime listeners. And uh, this is just a topic that was really important to him. So uh, without kind of uh, further explanation, let's jump into that chat. Okay, let's get to it. I'm excited for this, and it's a it's a treat to have on both somebody we've had on the show before and a brand new guest. We'll start with a uh, brand new uh, Rhonda. It's an absolute treat to have you on uh, the Grenada to talk about this uh, this kind of growing problem with there maybe not being enough watchmakers. Yeah, well, thanks. I'm excited to be able to talk about it because it is something. It's it's not a new to- topic, I guess. It, it's it's not a new issue. I think I first became aware of it about. Five years ago, even before, you know, supply chain shortages, that when okay. I went to, you know, enthusiast meetups, that one of the biggest problems or concerns that collectors had was who was going to service their watch if they bought it, if something went wrong. And, you know, a little backstory, I, I kind of got into watches through vintage and I'd met so many people who didn't want to deal with vintage because there was no one to repair their watch. And also there was the growing thing about parts being available. Um, Mm -hmm. You had um, Swatch Group when they, they kind of took over 
ETA, um, they weren't selling the parts to other people anymore. Yeah. So that limited, you know, for a smaller independent uh, watchmakers. Well, and I guess this is a question too, that, you know, I, I, you know, talked to, to Jason um, after the article came out and, you know, how that affects the, the boutiques, the, the stores, um, the, the having the watchmaker on staff and how limited it is, how limiting it must be to be able to perform those services for customers. I think that's that's a, a nice synopsis of the topic and something we're certainly getting in, get, going to get into. But uh, next up, uh, obviously, we're here because you wrote that article. Yes. But we're also here because uh, my good friend Jason Gallup, who's been on the show several times before, he's sort of our correspondent in watchmaking and watch servicing and, and silly questions from me and the rest of the audience about, you know, can you do this with your watch? Are you going to break it if you do that? So... Jason's been on a few times. He's joining us today because, Jason, you wrote me after this article came out, after Rana's article hit um, Watchinista, uh, to say that this is, you know, a, and it's a topic that I know you're you're very passionate about, but something you wanted to talk about and if you thought TGM would be a good spot to do it. So, Jason, welcome back. This has to be the third outing for you, maybe fourth at this point? Yeah, I think, I think so. Thank, thanks for um, having me back after that, all of that stuff. So um, yeah, it's pro- probably a good thing. Yeah, this, this subject is um, most certainly near and dear to my heart, uh, being a watchmaker and, uh, and a business owner. So uh, yeah, when I, when I read this article, it, it was very um, affirming. I was uh very, very pleased to see that somebody was paying attention, and many people are paying attention, but it's it's uh, a very subdued attention. But I I I was just wowed by the fact that you know there were there were some real numbers uh, in the article and and stuff like that, which uh, which I'm sure we'll we'll get into in uh, in in a minute. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you listened uh, to the intro, uh, this story went up on Watchinista on the 30th of October. It's called Watchmaking's Watchmaker Problem. And Rhonda, I guess my question starts at a really easy point. Uh, You said that you've been kind of tracking this as a generalized concern, both from enthusiasts who actually understand the supply chain that affect their watches, all the way down to, you know, the Swiss in general, and maybe even specific brands. Um, what, what was kind of the, the seed that pushed you to, to put this article together, uh, this year? Well, I'd just gone to, uh, watch time in New York and the, the wind up watch fair. So mm-hmm. once again, um, you know, as, as a, as a writer, as a journalist, we do kind of live in a bubbles apart from collectors and enthusiasts. We're writing about the business or the lifestyle end of a, of watchmaking. We, write about new releases and at watch time, I was actually feeling very overwhelmed about how many watches are being released. They're all great. And I love it, but you know, we how, how are all these watches coming out and who's making them? Because at the same time um, I was in uh, Glasshutta earlier this year, visiting the uh, Glasshutta original pardon my uh, mangling of pronunciations of watch brands, but um, we were in Glasshuda, which is a tiny town, but it has several watchmaking factories. And they all had these big advertisements like on the roof, um, wanting to get people to come work in watchmaking. There was such a shortage. And 
so on one hand, they're releasing, you know, tens and tens of to hundreds of watches every year, it feels like. And yeah. at the same time, they're advertising, like they're literally across from the Glasshuda factory is like the Tutima factory. And on the roof of the Tutima factory, it's advertising, you know, come work for us. They're they're trying to get people, they're paying for people to work in, you know, take training and schooling. And it's like, well, how do these, how do these match up when we're told there's supply chain issues, but mm -hmm. is it really, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing a bit because there's, there's a part that when you do tour, we're lucky as journalists to get to visit these factories and see how the watches are made. And you realize that it's not like one, you know, wizened old watchmaker sitting at a bench building, you know, from case polishing to putting all the things together. It's not one guy. There's polishers. There's uh, people pulling the the resin to, you know, make the the jewels, all these things. It's beautiful to see, but that's a lot of people. And yeah. we don't appreciate how many people go into making a watch. And then on the other end, when it goes, something breaks, who's fixing it? Um, so, Sorry, if, sorry if I'm all over the map because it is no, like no, 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 it's such is a wide, wide problem that starts from the yeah. very beginning, from the the you know conceptualizing the watch, building it, um, and then on the other end, you want to take care of it. It's a sustainable thing. You have to take care of it, and if you can't get the parts, if you don't have the people who are trained to do it, when I started collecting maybe twenty years ago, there were lots of watchmakers here and I could take, you know, my Mickey mouse watch in and get it fixed because I have fun watches too. And now I couldn't, I don't think I could find a watchmaker in Toronto who would touch anything. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing because we saw, we saw a lot of, a lot of these kind of case studies of the idea of a supply chain or the multifaceted way in which people approach the development, the creation, and then the support of a given product, especially when it comes to, let's say, automotive mm -hmm. throughout the COVID world. I think a lot of people realized, oh, wait, if there's no new cars, uh, that puts a lot of pressure on used cars. And then, of course, that pressure means they became very expensive or exceedingly difficult to find or or the ones that were in the market were probably cars that shouldn't have been in the market in the first place and, and all that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm wondering um, if you could bring folks up to speed on kind of what the current, because there's some good numbers in your story. Yes. And I don't want to bury those too deeply because I think they paint a, a fairly clear picture of why brands and collectors might be concerned about the supply chain and, and the kind of culture to a certain extent that supports watches, uh, like you said, both at like, say, a design and assembly point but also a service point down the road. Yes. And and I think to me the most, when I was researching this story, the thing that the number that stuck out the most is that they are actually, you know, the Swiss are selling less watches. It might, I might feel overwhelmed by the amount of, of launches, <laughs> but there's actually, um, there's less watches being made, but because, and they're asking more money for them because they are more complicated that the mm -hmm. the sales wow. are in the high end and the super complications and even though it's less watches it requires more hands to make them 
and also because they're more complicated, the more complicated something is, the more likely it is to break. Uh, you know, to take it back to the car uh, analogy that um, I remember when I was sort of more into the automotive, <laughs> what was happening in the automotive scene, it was like, yeah, your, uh, your old uh, ty- Toyota could, you know, run on a couple of patch jobs and things and keep going for a long time. My grandfather was a mechanic, so I kind of would see this, you know, somebody pull up in the driveway and he would, he would put their car back together. But if you had a, you know, a fancy German car, you had to go back, get the parts from Germany. It would take months usually to get it. And Mm -hmm. there were very few people who had the expertise where I grew up to, to do that. There were lots of German cars for some reason, <laughs> but uh... <laughs> yeah, you've 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 touched you've touched on uh, a number of really really good points. We, we've seen the industry change um, significantly. When when I started watchmaking, when I was like seventeen. I, I was um, by the time I was nineteen, I was in Switzerland and 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 uh, at at Wastep, etc. And you, you know. Th- I remember very vividly going in and doing, or going on a uh, a tour of the Swatch plant, and it was the very first time a watch had been uh, manufactured uh, autonomously. Um, there were conveyor belts going uh, everywhere. It was it was the beginning of of most certainly a, a revolution in order to be able to to mass produce the watches that they needed uh, to to meet the demand. Um, they the, the the industry had adapted to that, and I think that you know it it's it's been a slow ramping up since the uh, since the late eighties of of this issue, where you know uh, when I was at Wastep there was only one Wastep, you know some of some of the factories were were producing uh, their own watchmakers, but it really did rely on you know um switzerland uh, and perhaps even france for uh the workforce uh to to feed these factories with the increased demand that we've seen uh, quite significantly since uh covid and a little bit before covid the awareness for watches has increased incredibly um people have seen re-releases from brands and then all of a sudden become interested in the uh, original watch which would then be vintage uh so searching for that ebay's been a great enabler to find those things uh, along with uh, a few other niche um outlets for for vintage pieces and then that opened up Pandora's box with regard to, hey, I'm buying a watch and, you know, is it going to work? And if it arrives and it doesn't work, it's either send it back or fix it. There was once a time where it was fairly easy uh, to have a, a watch fix, like like you said, Rhonda. Mm-hmm. And uh, that isn't, that certainly isn't, isn't the case now. Yeah, the industry's realized it, but has been very slow on the uptake to make change. I was going to ask you uh, also, Jason, that because um, we had uh, sent a couple of messages back and forth before this, um, how does it affect? Because I had numbers from, you know, what are the shortages of 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 uh, watchmakers 
for example, and uh, that, you know, what were the projected, like we're just going to, the new watchmakers coming in doesn't meet the demand of people retiring at this point. But you bring up WASTEP and, you know, there's, if you're not in, you know, Switzerland, where are watchmakers getting training? And that, that was something I didn't touch on in the article, but I'm kind of interested in now. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's an amazing point, you know, um, because, you know, there, there have been watchmaking schools pop up. There, there is a watchmaking school here in Canada. Um, it's unaccredited. Um, so unfortunately people going through that, uh, don't get the, the really, uh, the first rung on the step to get into, uh, watchmaking globally speaking. It, it requires, I think that requires, um, um, more established watchmaking schools. Uh, and, I say um, I say established. Um, <laughs> Wasteps only been around since um, uh, the seventies, uh, mid seventies or so, um, mm-hmm. and it was only one school for the longest time. Schools are not producing enough enough people now. I read some statistics with with regard to regions for this, and I was actually quite quite interested. It seems like. France, if the if the numbers are are to be trusted, are actually making more watchmakers than than Germany and even even perhaps Switzerland. The proximity to Switzerland for French watchmakers right out of school is great. Um, uh, so so that I think is is amazing. But I think this also goes down to culture too. Um, uh, the French probably think about it quite differently um, than most other places around the world and care about watchmaking schools and and training people well but also on top of that the curriculum has changed uh significantly the curriculums in these schools have changed to suit big industry mm-hmm. over independence so th- that they're, they're trying to um introduce watchmakers into the industry with you know the minimum knowledge to be able to get through because they'll be going into a service center mm-hmm. and they'll be finished off there so to speak um you know you'll get to work on certain calibers and and uh, then you'll upgrade to different things as your skills increase because when you get out of school you're pretty green going out of school into independence is an entirely different story um and and that is um, a whole other issue with with um, watchmaking's watchmaker issue is that we don't have enough local uh, places to service watches uh, like we used to, and that's you know that's a problem because then it it looks more like a monopoly on uh, on big industry side uh, for pricing. So does you know it doesn't it doesn't help the consumer very much uh, when all watches have to go back to the service center. However, if there are independents, there's there's choice there, there's pricing differences there. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, there's other issues that come along with that, and that's being able to access parts. 
I think that's a like a piece of the topic that does align with this, though, because the the parts thing I think speaks to something that comes up in in Rhonda's original story. And to be clear, the number that that we danced around there for the last few minutes is there's an estimated uh, four thousand new watchmakers needed in Switzerland alone. So that's only one market where watches are designed, serviced, cared for, assembled, the rest of it, and that's by 2026. Uh, so that gives you a, a, like a number, and that number was put out by the Employers Convention of the Swiss Watch mm-hmm. Industry. So it's I'm, I'm assuming they know at least their own game there in Switzerland. They've got the numbers to uh, to understand, and uh, you know that's a big number when you know from some of the notes that uh, Jason you provided to me, I'm counting. You know m- maybe the training system in the world is cranking out about s- 1,700 watchmakers uh, a year on a really yeah, good year. Yeah, on a really good year. And that could be dependent upon the phase of a multi-year program. So you could have a lack year as well. Yes. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it, it highlights a certain issue. But, Rhonda, your story kind of hinged, at least in the first third of it, on the fact that, you know, we had this kind of twofold weird problem where COVID introduced a huge amount of demand for all types of watches and, of course, put a stress on the production and the servicing side. But then if we stretch out the trends in our world, in the enthusiast watch world, before COVID, we all started to get kind of hyped up about in-house. Yes. And in-house means you can't just take your Eta 2824 to Jason and in a couple weeks' time have a, you know, now perfectly functioning 2824. It's, the world is a little different. And I've taken movements, uh, watches to Jason for him to go, it's broken, but unfortunately it's from X brand and I can't just call them and get a part, mm-hmm. right? So you, we're going back to the dealer on this one. And, and in this case, the dealer's not down the street or in the next town like it might be if you bought one of these German cars we talked about. Yeah. It's it's going back to Switzerland probably, or it's going to a, a huge service hub, like you know, for those of us who've gone through, say, a, a Rolex service mm-hmm. um, that, that could be done out of uh, their New York area you know, outfit. Well, just as a, a personal anecdote, as I took my uh, Omega uh, Dynamic to get service, because there is a, a Swatch servicing place here in Toronto, and this is a place where people I know outside of Toronto, like people drive in from Buffalo, New York, to have their watch service because they didn't want it to get, otherwise they'd have to take it back to the dealer and it would get sent to Switzerland. But now, mm-hmm. even here where they have the service center, they wanted to send it back to Switzerland. And I'd never had that problem before taking things. But now it's like, no, if it needs a new crystal, and I said, but I don't even want a new crystal. I just yeah. want the, the crown is busted. Can, can't you fix it? And they couldn't because even then the parts weren't available. Um, so I can imagine how frustrating it is if you don't live in a city like New York or Toronto that has a service center. Same with Rolex. I, they uh, can't fix everything. And you don't want to be apart from your watch. It could take six months. Um, mm-hmm. It co- the, the cost is a lot. But then it comes back. Another part of the story is, you know, with... It's it's all such a weird, and I, I'm going to have to write a second part, <laughs> a part two to this story, because there's so many elements that, you know, a web of, of things. You're, you don't, your watch breaks, it's hard to get the parts, or you're on a waiting list because there's not enough watchmakers to put the watch together, or in this case, um, you kind of 
are at the mercy of the brands that when you want to take a watch in to get fixed and they send it, there's a list that like, we're going to polish the crystal. We're going to polish the bezel. Like, is it scratched? And it's like, I don't mind a scratched thing, but at the same time, if you don't do it the way they want you to, you lose value because we've also seen watches become kind of more of a commodity that if people are Mm -hmm. spending a lot of money on watches, they want to know at least there's some resale value or something. It's not a way I think about watches, but people do. They want to buy a watch. It costs a lot of money. They want a watch that works. They don't have it away from them. But if they have to sell it and you don't have all the box and papers and all your service doesn't come from an authorized service place, then you could lose value on your watch. Yeah, quite. I mean, quite easily. Yeah, and and especially especially when you enter the world where the service isn't done correctly, mm-hmm. because maybe maybe you live in an area where there just isn't a you know a reputable great watchmaker. There's just a watchmaker, and may or may not understand the enthusiast perspective. May or may not understand the watch they're necessarily working on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when you get into the asset class thing about this, then then again we have like another connection to the automotive world, which is kind of weird, right? Like the way that you hear about the more and more of these cars that become collectible, people stop driving them and they start falling apart. They just deteriorate in garages um, if they're not cared for. And the care takes time and effort. And, and, you know, in my time doing the car and the watch thing, I've met people who like have a guy for their 50 cars or whatever. And, and I, I do wonder, and I'm sure to a certain point that the answer is that they do, but I wonder if there's, you know, super collectors out there that basically, you know, they're keeping a, a watchmaker gainfully employed, um, you know, keeping keeping their collection mm-hmm. ready for auction or, you know, ready for post-auction, like if they're buying stuff or, or that sort of thing. And I'm sure some of this also must put a lot of pressure on, you know, we've mentioned obviously big, big elements and, and then uh, the, the assembling side, the, the, the brand element, but I imagine there's, there's got, this has to cascade into several, like if you're a dealer and your business is turnover and you're buying vintage watches mm-hmm. or new watches pre-owned, whatever it is. And those ones have to be serviced in some way. At what point are you sitting there waiting 90, 120 days on your inventory just to get it back in so you can list it and sell it? It's a, like, it is a problem that would affect like essentially all elements of, of this space. And it's also sometimes with watch industry business news it's like if you're just a normal enthusiast of watches like even if you're me to a certain extent like at a personal level like i just don't um none of it's really going to change the way i inter- interface with this whole world mm-hmm. um but like a watchmaker shortage will actually change the way that watches kind of hit all of us it'll change the way that these businesses prioritize certain types of technologies it'll be it'll like it 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 would affect the next generation of watches and when you think that Rolex is making something like mm-hmm. 3,000 watches a day, if they're still doing something like a million a year, it's crazy to think that we're 4,000 people short to support something. Like, that's just one brand. Yeah. Like talk about, talk about. I, I feel like that number maybe, I'm, I'm sure it's holistic to Switzerland, but then, you know, we have several other places in the world where watches come from, right? And, and where people are trained to work with watches. I just wanted to go back to the article too, that if you have a, limited amount of people of watchmakers and other, you know, polishers and things, their focus, the brands have to make a choice. Are 
are we going to focus on producing or are we going to focus on repairs? Like we have limited resources. What are we going to allocate those people to do? There's a third dimension to that. And that is movement replacements. Um, in order to compensate for a, for a lack of um, service personnel, um, many brands, they started this years ago, um, would just uh, do straight on movement replacements. Um, I know, um, you know, we've we've had experience with that with uh, um, Tudor for sure, um, but men, many brands do that. Cartier's done it for a long time, maybe not in uh, across all of their lines, but uh, um, certainly it's much faster. You need uh, a less skilled um, uh, person to actually do a job like that, so it's quick to uh, to train uh, that person up um, to be able to do it, and it it works. It works for um, for for most for most brands. I think then there's the gap that that there is for the higher end stuff. Anything that's a watch over fifty thousand dollars, where they're going to be making it, the assembling it, uh, assembling it, and then carrying on the service of it afterwards. It requires mm-hmm. uh, a complete. Well, maybe not a completely different skill set, but it needs a a specific skill set um, in order to do that, and that that's uh, a segment of uh, the watchmaker population which is very very small, and that is decreasing too because typically those positions have been given to senior watchmakers uh, you know they they've started young stayed with a company and have gained a lot of experience and and that's what's being lost lost now um i and and to compensate for that you know like i said before there there isn't the production but the interesting thing here too is that i think that there may be a perception issue um, uh, happening in the general public. I looked on a number of forums after reading your article, and uh, one one particular post that I found on an Omega forum was was very insightful, um, saying that you know um, certainly there's no longer a, a, a watchmaker issue when we can get our watches into the service center and they'll be repaired. It's a bit disconcerting when you think about that because um you know it 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 it, it is it does not come it does not come across uh got to get the wording right for this depending on a service center is putting all your eggs in one basket uh you don't have options you can't build up a relationship with a watchmaker like you used to to be able to take care of your watch and nurture it and be able to deal with minor issues quickly um, because you can just walk in and, and, and say, hey, this is happening with my watch. When you're sending your watch off, it is, um, um, it's a problem. I'll quote you from this one, art, uh, one post. It says, certainly there's no longer a watchmaker in every small town like there might have been in the 50s, but I can send my Speedmaster into one of the world's leading specialist watchmakers and have it back in two or three months. So I wonder, is watchmaking really dying? And again, it's one of those one of those things that if the brands are saying they need watchmakers and they can't get them, that that's an issue. But 
on the outside, people don't think it's an issue. And if people don't think it's an issue, then perhaps people do not see watchmaking as a viable career choice, which then affects the number of people going in. Yeah, and I, I think that brings me to where I, where I wanted to to pivot because, uh, Rhonda, your article does such a good job of explaining kind of the the watch product side of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think the the other element that's that's kind of interesting here is like we understand that the demand is high, and that we're making more watches and thus more more people are required for it. But there isn't necessarily as clear of a statement as to why there aren't more watchmakers. Yes. And I think it's, it's an interesting thing because it seems like different, obviously this is different places in the world have a different feeling about this as a job, as a career, right? Like I don't think I could have gone to school here in Canada to become a watchmaker, um, you know, even years ago, right? I think, and this kind of goes back to back to Jason's comment about the perception of watchmaking. I don't know if people actually, we become as consumers sort of, distanced ourselves from, you know, how, how the sausage is made. Um, so, you know, there's great careers in, in trades that are going unfilled across the board, not just watchmaking, because I think people don't realize how interesting it is or, you know, satisfying. And it's, it's not, if you train well, it's not a, a bad a bad career choice as far as yeah. you know making money, but I guess everyone. <laughs> I feel like old lady shaking my fist at the sky, but everyone wants to be an entrepreneur and a a disruptor and make a million bucks. The the question I had that had that I'd, I'd love to the, hear what the two of you think because it's more of a hypothetical. I, okay. I don't have data that would that would kind of speak into this, but with with the idea that so much of an of things in our lives have become disposable. Mm-hmm. You don't really like you can fix some things on, say, your cell phone, right? Um, but I think most people, if it breaks, maybe unless it's the screen or or a battery, like something you could take it to a shop and they'd fix it. And you see those shops around, so that's that feels like sort of an expression of a similar thing. That maybe that's how it used to be for watchmaking. There would be a shop roughly in your neighborhood. The guy could do a bunch of generalist tasks and, mm-hmm. and keep your watch going. And I do wonder if. The quartz crisis, and I'm not saying quartz is a bad thing, but I do think it made watches more disposable than they were before. And um, and I, I just wonder if what we're seeing is a long tail effect of watches being seen as um, disposable to the wider world. The watch enthusiast world knows that you could buy even a relatively inexpensive watch today and wear it your whole life. And it would need to be serviced a couple times, right, in that, in that span of time, maybe a little more, whatever. And certainly, you know, you see other industries are able to keep up with their service needs, but they're, you, again, I'm, I'm going back to the car world or maybe into the contractor world, right? You buy a house at some point, maybe even it's yours when it's brand new. Someone's going to come along and help you keep the roof from leaking and other things like that. And I just wonder why we got to this point where we were short on watchmakers. Um, and, and I do, I just wonder if, if it became a thing where this is that, like maybe we're actually starting to see just how much of an enthusiast pursuit this is. We're in a niche world. Everybody else out there is just looking at the time on their phone, and that means there's fewer fewer kind of broad-level um, cultural scenarios in which watchmaking is, you know, set up in the same way as it might, you know, some other career or trade. I saw a post recently from uh, the British School of Watchmaking 
um, they were advertising for their intake in January. Um, uh, so please apply because guaranteed after the 1800-hour WASTEP program, there is 100% um, um, employability rate. So that shows you uh, right there that, that um, this, the schools are not producing enough. If it was 80%, right, it would, it, it would tell a different story. Um, so when, as soon as they say, yes, you're 100% employable, no matter what, um, you're, you're, you're in there. So it's, I think, I think the core, the core of this is, you know, courts did change things. Um, it, uh, reduced, uh, perhaps the value of a watch in a sense that they, it, it, it allowed prices of watches to drop somewhat. Um, People started to to lose interest with that over time. I think uh, the Apple Watch um, ha- uh, came along and started to revive people's interest in in uh, 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 wristborne time telling and other things. Um, but what it did was it it opened up nostalgia uh, for for nicer things, um, and that's where people started to think about it. So I think there was a, a general lull. Um, people buying quartz watches like crazy, they break down. Is it worth repairing them? Move, move on to the, to, to buy the next watch, uh, because it's disposable. But, but now people are seeing the benefits of mechanical watches. Um, certainly the companies, the brands are seeing that because they're producing more and more and more. So the interest must be there, uh, uh, regardless, um, but unfortunately, watchmaking schools—they're—they're—they're they're, they're on the um, the slow end of the dog wagging tail, right? They—they—they um, they react um, in a different time space to to the industry. The industry gets its information quickly. Uh, we create a watch, we sell it. If it if it sells quickly, we're onto a winner. This is good. This is what people want. Sell more of that. Sell more of that. Sell more of that. If they are selling more in the way of mechanical watches, it takes a while for that to percolate back to the watchmaking schools to say, oh my goodness, we need more watchmakers. We're, we're stuck now. And I think this is where we're, this is where we're sitting. Like it has, it has to be more than just the watchmaking industry that is supporting watchmaking schools. Um, in the U S you have, um, uh, Bolivar has, I guess for a long time, supported veterans taking watchmaking classes so they're getting the information out there that this is this is a good job this will provide steady income and will set you up you know the horological society of new york has various um programs to basically make it a free free education and also maybe get some grants to pay for your housing and things like that so there's educational things like uh, again there's just so, so few watchmaking schools um in europe maybe like in a in a region that's got a strong history of watchmaking people know about it like in going back to glass huda again um that there's several watch you know several 
ateliers or maisons of various sizes, and people have been watchmaking for generations. But uh, here it's, I think I know one person <laughs> who, who has a parent who was a watchmaker. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, we, we, need, we need to, I guess, and, and this is something I was talking to Jason about, is like, Roldorf is helping people get watchmaking training like that actually segments into something very interesting here and this is um this is something that the brands are doing now but even then they're having um they're they're having issues um with it and that is um changing the model for training this typically uh in the dawn of watchmaking um Young young people that were interested in horology would would find uh, a watchmaker that they could apprentice with, and they would spend a certain amount of time. And if they were promising um, watchmaker, um, the person that they were um, uh, that they were under would have connections in the industry and ask them to go to another another watchmaker who had a different insight in complications or, or something like that. So people would would pass around and that was be passed around. And that was the start of the early watchmaking school, I think, in, in many ways before it was formalized into training centers. Um, um, the most modern of which is is like what uh, step, but the brands have opened up their doors now to training themselves. We've seen this with Patek Philippe in New York. Um, many numerous brands are, are, are doing this. The problem here um, is that there's been an, a, an onset of, of independent watchmaking and micro brands. Um, in order for them to be able to get um, uh, employees and watchmakers, uh, you know they're they're having they're having to struggle to to find this. There was um, a quote that um, um, Moser actually uh, said that um, you know because there's a shortage of watchmakers, the cost of the watchmaker is astronomical because that's what they're demanding. Mm -hmm. So for smaller co uh, companies you know, regular watch shops, jewelry stores and stuff like that. It It is a massive investment to do that. And this is another reason why uh, we're not finding watchmakers in every store that sells watches like they used to be. Yeah. You know, I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm every week. Don't don't keep you guys forever and for too long. And especially if there's a second uh, a second outing for this article. Um, from uh, from Rhonda's mind, Rhonda, I, I'm curious. When you were putting the article article together, did you come across anyone who felt like they really had the solution, or or what maybe what the Swiss believe the solution is? Because saying you need four thousand more trained people is one thing. It, I think it probably takes a lot of moving parts to yes. make that number move in the in the right direction, right? Yes, it's. Uh, I don't. I'm sure there are people who are very confident they have the solution, but it is such a. <laughs> a wide ranging thing. Yeah, and I went to the Longines uh, manufacturer. First of all, there's somebody from the archive who goes around buying, you know, old, new old stock or dead stock all over the world. So you can even get, you know, a, an enamel pocket watch dial 
because they found a guy in Brazil who had a, a box full. It's amazing, an amazing thing to see. So they are committed to the servicing of all watches from the past. So as a, a vintage fan, that makes me happy. But they also have a, a training school, you know, on, on site that they are training people, not just what, you know, all the aspects of watchmaking, um, because it isn't easy to become a watchmaker. I've had the opportunity to visit a lot of places and they've let me put on a white lab coat and try try my hand at taking a movement apart and putting it back together again. I cannot do it. Um so there there are <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> there's physical skills and and you know that are needed, but not for every part. I'm not uh, I don't want to brag too much, but I'm fairly decent at perlage. <laughs> but uh you know I couldn't do any other part of watchmaking, I don't think. So they they are being able to train people in different aspects and maybe this is a kind of industrial take on it we'll mm -hmm. get people to work here and and do the finishing and do the cases and do the qr and more elite watch actual watchmaking um is another part and then the serve people who service is another part and i don't know if that's the perfect solution but also they because they're part of the larger you know company they're they're not an independent they cannot you can train there and then go to anywhere else in the world mm -hmm. i think a it's alluring to people that yeah if i if i trained up with swatch i can then work for swatch in brazil or it doesn't have to be switzerland it doesn't right. have okay. to be Germany. So I think that might be appeal. So that solves the problem of how do you make this profession appealing to people, especially young people in a global society? They want to, they don't want to be that picture again of, you know, a kindly old person at a, at a workbench, you know, tinkering away. They, sure. That, and, and also uh, another Frederic Constant is trying to, uh, you know, address the problem by giving young watchmakers more of a chance to bring their voice to the table beyond just the, you know, family generate multi-generational watchmakers, try to get the people who maybe got into watchmake watches as an enthusiast mm -hmm. and then want to try their hand at watchmaking. So not, not the Nepo babies of watches. Okay. <laughs> beyond, <laughs> Beyond those family kind of things, bringing new people in, but also listening to their voices, because that is an, another part of watchmaking. Um, we have new developments like, you know, silicon and, and materials and things that older generations haven't used before. Right. Things that are trying to keep the prices down. Mm -hmm. So like maybe 3D modeling, like we'll be able to manufacture new parts through uh you know, 3D printing someday. But uh, yes, people have strong opinions, but I don't think there's any one perfect answer yet. Yeah, there's no, there's no, yeah, there's no like, well, yeah, exactly. One perfect solution, one magic solution that somebody's just saving to, to suddenly create all these, you know, Jason, I'd love to grab your uh, perspective on this just as we close, obviously, because you came from a world in which you were trained essentially as a generalist watchmaker, 
not through a brand mm-hmm. uh, specifically. And um, and I don't know, you know, with the woe step experiencing being one, what, what do you see as some of the, you know, I, I assume just like Rhonda was saying, it's, it's the, whatever the solution will be, will be very multifaceted and will probably have to be developed over the next few years. So I'm sure I'm sure that we will actually see the true effect of those missing four thousand people um, by the time 2026 comes along. But Jason, I wonder, you know, in your mind, what would be the kind of sensible solution to support all sides of it, not just the brands that want to create their own people, but the brands that want to support wider watch education or even schools that do it, you know, as as essentially independent outlets of that information. Yeah, that it, that's actually a very. Uh, requires a very deep answer (laughs) but um yeah so i i had both worlds i was uh i went through wastep and uh while i was actually working for rolex so i i saw what it was like in the service center as that and i realized quite quickly just it wasn't it wasn't for me i wanted to be independent so i could see other things now with in, in enrollments um, especially in North America, um, diminished or diminishing um, with numbers. The numbers are very, very low for output of watchmakers in North America. The system has to change. It's, you know, where where there's a cluster of business in Europe, there will always be a cluster of training. But when it comes around to the rest of the world, there is going to be a hard time um trying to be able to capture some of those watchmakers to come in so this is where regionalized schools is uh comes into play however that isn't enough um we need um a different a different way of looking at this uh problem and trying to find solutions number one we we need to raise the awareness of the trade um uh, to show people that a it's viable and to it can pay well, and three, it's fun. It it's an alternative uh, to, to to many other things, and will suit many people. It will suit people that don't realize it will suit them, and I'm one of those people. Um, and uh, and I think in order to change that way, so we raise awareness that we have to be able to develop more schools much faster than we are or expand the schools that that we currently have but then also for for those areas that have low enrollment we need uh, a hybrid solution uh, to training uh, to to get uh, certified watchmakers um and that would be uh, an apprenticeship with um uh, school time attached to it which is what currently we're doing at the moment um with the AWCI and that that is a that that's a fairly nascent thing um I, and will will require some tweaking but it it will actually help honestly though i think going back to the original the original concept here is raising awareness um the industry is is small and it's it's in a silo. It isn't in the mainstream other than seeing watches being worn by people. But until people actually realize that that it is a viable um, trade to go into, then um, we we won't have the people. I'm I I'd love to have another um, apprentice start with me next year. 
but trying to find even a person because people don't think about it, right? There aren't the avenues to to just go to. I can't go to the government of Canada, for example, and and uh, put a put a, um, a notice on their job bank because watchmaking and horology and any of those tags don't actually appear there. It's not on their radar whatsoever. So if we go back one step further to government, it needs changing government. And this is where my earlier concept of, hey, why does France have such a large number of, uh, of uh, watchmakers uh, that they're producing? I think it all goes back to the government and the, the um, uh, emphasis they put on watchmaking at, at that point. Yeah, and I suppose there's also channels there between governments and schools that already exist. Um, so you wouldn't be creating new roads, you'd just be changing what's kind of going down some, some of them at that point. Or or at least uh, cutting the foliage off them to remake those roads um, so we can get things started again. Um, that That is, that that's... Um, mo- most definitely needed. Plus, then also industry grants and funding, even for the independents to be able to create that uh, more funding for the AWCI, that that kind of stuff. Um, when you don't have an Olympic program for a sport, it always goes back to the government to prop it up, right? Right now, the Olympic sport here is watchmaking, and uh, the gov- the in in Canada at least, and probably in the US, there there really isn't um, that uh, there really isn't that uh, support in, especially when you look at the the, the need um, that's out there. Yeah, right, the Ministry of Training Colleges and Universities tomorrow <laughs> to get a <laughs> start a start a petition. Uh, Rhonda, I'm I'm curious as we as we start to wrap up here, and any anything else you'd want to add, anything you'd like to point out um, uh, that you think is kind of crucial to this? It it sounds like it sounds like that you know they've identified the problem to some extent. It, it'll be interesting yeah. to see what what we come up with with as a solution for watches. As I said before, I really need to do a follow up article because so many people have reached out after you know, ideas or identifying different problems. And it is hard in a, you know, a thousand words to totally to get to everything. But, you know, like Jason says, the first step is getting the awareness out there um, that it is worth having your watches made well, and it's worth having someone who can take care of them. Um, whether, whether it is a Mickey Mouse watch or a, uh, you know, a Patek that, uh, if as a community, and that includes the brands, the watchmakers, the boutiques, um, we, we need to, uh, support each other, I guess, in, in this endeavor. But I'm also, um, for part two, Jason, I really want to talk about, you know, the, the boutiques mm-hmm. and, and the, the, the independent watchmakers, because people have to, focus you know make those parts available again or have more you know certified watchmakers instead of just sending things back to the factory because mm-hmm. it keeps it's that relationship like i think about i had a really my my former watchmaker um i had a great relationship he would let me go and watch him do repairs if they were small enough you know and that just kind of 
makes you connect with things. And I believe, you know, if we don't want watches to be disposable again, we need to connect with all of those actions from, you know, not just something you buy, but something mm-hmm. that you keep going over a lifetime. Same with cars. You love a car. You're going to want to keep it going. Well, look, I can't thank you both enough for coming on and chit-chatting with us. I look forward to maybe being able to do this again in six months and and even maybe even the next time there's some fresher numbers out, we'll see which way the needle moved. Yeah. Um, Rhonda, I'll, I'll let you go first. Anywhere that uh, people can find you, follow along with your stories and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, you can follow me on watchanista.com. Um, I'm on Instagram as uh, the real Rhonda Rich. Um, so you can see my various posts about watches and cat, my cat. <laughs> I do um, like the cat <laughs> stuff. It's good. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's about it. Fantastic. And Jason, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned at the top, the audience uh, knows you enough uh, from p- past episodes. But for folks who maybe are, are just new new to you, what um, where, where can people find you and maybe find other ways to connect with you? Or if they want to send you an email about maybe becoming a watchmaker, um, what's the best way to kind of interface with you these days? The easiest thing is just through the website, uh, rolldorf.co, or on Instagram at uh, rolldorf, and that's that's us. You you can you can reach out, and if you really are interested, uh, seriously, in becoming a watchmaker, contact me because uh, I've got a lot of insight and would love to chat with you. All right. Well, this has been fantastic. I can't thank you both for taking an hour out of your busy days to uh, come on the show and chit chat. And I know Jason sent me a text message while we were recording. My my Jason, Jason <laughs> Heaton, sent me a text message while we were recording saying uh, just to say thank you to both. So it means a lot for uh, for Jason and I that you guys would hop on the show and, and help us out with an episode that's kind of core to what feels at times when you read stories like this, like a little bit of a dying flame. Um, and, and obviously none of us want that. We, we really enjoy the product, but these are products that should last forever. And the forever part requires a lot of human involvement. Um, when you, when you're talking about millions of watches or a watch where there's maybe only a few of them, uh, and there's special stuff on both sides of that line. So I appreciate you guys uh, digging into the topic a little bit with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. I think, uh, I think Rhonda will, will look forward to having you on more in the future and uh, it's always fun to kind of expand uh, the horizons with new perspectives. So appreciate you both, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Well, thanks for that uh, that really interesting chat, uh, Jason and Rhonda and, and you, James, for for kind of shepherding them through that that talk. I thought it was really interesting. And, uh, you know, it brings to mind, you know, we, we have this sub-channel on the Slack group for watchmaker referrals, and and people are always seeking watchmakers. I mean, the, oh, yeah. the more popular watches get and the more people are buying watches, I mean, they, they need servicing. And, uh, and so uh, it was a very timely topic and, and thanks to both Rhonda and Jason for, for joining on TGN. That was great. Yeah, totally. I mean, if we get a chance and there's a second part to that story, we'll have them back on. And, uh, and I do encourage anyone listening, if you're at the point in your life where you're looking down the possibility of starting a new career or picking a first career, and you would like a little bit of advice on whether or not watchmaking might be that career for you, reach out to Jason. He offered it. I guarantee he didn't mean that, um, you know, to placate the audience in any way. He'd love to have a discussion if it's something you're curious about. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. All right. Well, with that, uh, it's turned into quite a long episode. So let's, uh, let's dive into final notes. How about that? For sure. You want to go first? Looks like you've got two. 
I've got two. I've got a quick one and kind of a, a little longer one. Um, the first one is just a, a quick shout out to my friend Oren, who uh, is a musician and a composer, and he writes and performs under the name Leng Zai. Uh, you can find him on Spotify. Um, uh, he ha- is the guy who actually composed the Depth Charge theme, which which I still love. Oh, cool. He recently composed a new song called Friendship 7, which uh, you, know, you space nerds out there might recognize as the name of John Glenn's 1962 orbital flight. Uh, his Mercury flight. And indeed, the the song is kind of music overlaid with the audio track of John Glenn's uh, radio transmissions from from his orbit. So <laughs> what a cool idea. Uh, just kind of fun. Uh, and and Oren, uh, or Lang as he goes by on Spotify, uh, is, is a really talented guy and I've, I've been buddies with him for, for a good number of years. And, and it's, a, it's a good listen. But uh, yeah, check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes to, to that Spotify track. So that's my first one. Uh, James, why don't you jump in nice. and give us yours, and then I'll close out with my other one. Yeah, you know, the the main recommendation for today is definitely the Stephen McDonald talk that we mentioned at the top of the show. Please, just a, a little footnote, hit the show notes, check that out, or, or swing by Hodinkee, and uh, it'll, it'll be in the recent episode, so you can Google Stephen McDonald, and uh, I, I, no doubt you'll come across it. So my final note uh, officially for this week is a Top Gear's first drive of the Gordon Murray Automotive T50. It's just like a, a perfect um, like Top Gear. So it's their web, the website of the business. So it's Ollie Marriage is reviewing the car. I'm a big Ollie Marriage fan, and they've got this incredible blue T50, and it you know <laughs> revs to twelve thousand. Uh, <laughs> something now that the official numbers are out from Cosworth, and I, I'm going to get it the digits wrong here but it was something like 52,000 rpm a second is oh what it's gosh. capable of uh so it's red uh, zero to red line or idle to red line in 0.2 of a second <laughs> and it just I, there's a sequence I, I don't please watch this if you love cars this is such a special thing uh cosworth v12 a six speed very minimalist three seater so the driver has a central seating position very much sort of the the spiritual continuation of something like a, a mclaren f1 obviously designed by the same guy that helped uh put the entire project together for the uh, mclaren f1 and there's a sequence where all these you know heading towards a tunnel and you know he's he's telling you the revs as he downshifts and it's, you know, six is 3000 or whatever. And then fifth is 3,800 and then fourth and then third. And then you could 30 was only at about 7,000. So you could have gotten a second at highway, almost at highway speed or at least at, you know, um, back road tunnel, you know, Pyrenees mountain speed. Uh, and I just, I don't know. I can't imagine what it's like. I know, I know of one person that's loosely in like an acquaintance of an acquaintance that's getting one. And I, oh uh, I just, I can't wow. even imagine what it would be like to, to get a ride in that or drive in. I've had a ride in an F1. I got to start an F1. I've not driven one. <laughs> um, and I just, it, yeah. it's such a, the, the F1 was like kind of my start as like a, a real car enthusiast. I have the original magazine, the road and track with it on the cover and to see another car come out that's in that same ilk, this like deeply pure, not especially flashy crazy expensive let's be clear but largely custom with all the cool elements and the wild body work and that this one has a fan that creates you know 400 kilograms of downforce at v max and it, it's, it's just a fascinating <laughs> thing to see that this still exists naturally aspirated v12 that revs to 12 like let's go like <laughs> let's get excited makes me very happy yeah yeah 
And on the on the other side of that coin, I do want to throw a weird shout out there because it's probably my longest standing relationship with a piece of media is the show Top Gear. Um, I've you know at one point I think I had every episode on a hard drive uh, for the BBC. If you're asking, those weren't pirated, I promise. (laughs) And now they've uh, canceled the show, so it, it will not have another season. So the last couple of years have been with uh, Chris Harris and Patty McGinnis and Andrew Flintoff. Oh, yeah. I think that they're really, really successful, really fun seasons. But for whatever reason, uh, Top Gear has decided not to push on with uh, with another season. Maybe that means they come back someday. Maybe this means the YouTube channel will grow with different resources and that sort of thing. I don't really know. But it, it does this kind of a weird moment for me. So much of my like automotive enthusiasm in the Internet age was based in Top Gear clips on youtube and learning yeah. how to use like um torrents just so i could download top gear like a minute after it ended in the uk on a sunday <laughs> and i'd have friends over in my basement when i was much younger and and you know we'd all watch it and uh yeah it's it's a weird thing to know that's not not going to be around even though obviously the show's been yeah, through yeah i don't know a dozen iterations since the clarkson may hammond era sort of faded out yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. We kind of bookend this episode with uh, kind of farewells to to longstanding institutions, uh, Phoenix Straps and, mm-hmm. and now Top Gear. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, like with NATO Straps, I mean, with, with Top Gear, like now there's just you're spoiled for choice when it comes to kind of online streaming video, you know, kind of automotive shows or, or you know, review shows, everything from, you know, Throttle House to, to our friend Henry and, and all of this. And it's uh, but yeah, they were they were there at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's a that's an, an interesting touch point is there's no shortage of great car media these days. I would say the field is has never been stronger. Yeah, and yeah, whether whether you track down what Henry Catchpole is up to with Haggerty, which has been really incredible, great stuff, super enjoyable, or check out something like you know we've had um, Jacob from the Straight Pipes on the show in the past, and we've had Thomas from Throttle House, and I think especially with Throttle House, that most closely aligns with the sort of Top Gear format of hosts with some chemistry that are kind of goofing around a little bit and and then the car is is the main part of the story mm-hmm. uh, so i think there's a ton out there and uh and that, that's that's even only just scratches the surface like i just listed kind of the two biggest ones in canada and you know yeah w- who are at least you know kind of co-produced co-hosted by buddies uh they do some incredible stuff out there these days but uh i've, I've really been enjoying um, so much of what's in car media right now, you know, uh, the intercooler remains something I try and read every single day. They publish a story a day. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, there's, so there's some good stuff. It's not like we're, we're in a drought now that top gear is not going to do eight episodes a year, but there's always a bit of an occasion to, right. uh, getting to watch the, whatever the new episode of top gear was. Yeah. All right. What have you All got right. for your second? Yeah. My second one is, uh, it, it's also a YouTube video and it's called the voyage and it's, um, it's a video about a, a tall ship called the bark Europa, uh, that's based in, in the Netherlands. And, uh, I came across this because, uh, somebody I follow on Instagram had taken a voyage, uh, across the Drake passage from Ushuaia, uh, Argentina to Antarctica on this tall ship. And, and I was like fascinated by this. The photos were spectacular. Um, look, you know, looked like, uh, the old, uh, you know, Frank Hurley Shackleton oh, photos, sure. except they were, you know, high definition, like video, um, and photos. Um, but Europa actually runs expeditions where you can, they take amateurs and teach you how to kind of crew and sail a tall ship. And they, they do 
multiple voyages a year. Uh, and, and it just, it piqued my interest. And I was like, how could I make this work? It's like $16,000 <laughs> to do this 22 day sail from Argentina to Antarctica. And I was scheming. I'm like, how can I, can this be a business write-off, you know, book research, whatever. I got a little sidetracked, started looking into the Bark Europa. And I found this 30 minute video on YouTube called The Voyage. And it was filmed during the pandemic. So like March, like full on beginning of COVID time when the world was shutting down and the crew members on this tall ship were in Argentina, kind of stuck there. They couldn't go ashore um, because of lockdown. And uh, they were just trying to figure out how we're going to get back home, who, who will accept us. And the only place that would really take them in was their home port uh, back in the Netherlands. And so they sailed, you know, 10,000 miles <laughs> from Argentina back to the Netherlands on this tall ship. And it takes weeks. And, wow. and it just follows this voyage and, and this crew. And it, it's just captivating. I mean, it's, it's, there's not a lot of uh, voiceover or dialogue. Um, it, it, and that part isn't, isn't the, the reason I tuned in. It's just the footage is great and just kind of the life on board. It's just fascinating because this is the kind of sailing uh, and, and travel that you just don't see anymore. You read about it in, in old books. Um, or new books about old old expeditions, mm -hmm. you know, to the polar regions, et cetera. So, um, yeah, if you're kind of keen on this, uh, see what life on a tall ship is like on a very long voyage, uh, check it out, The Voyage on YouTube with the, the Bark Europa. That's great, man. Yeah, I scrubbed through that as you were talking, and the, the, no matter where I dropped the red dot on the video, uh, <laughs> the footage is remarkable. Storms and, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it looks like they're yeah. training to clean the boat and, and, you know, take care of it and <laughs> rescue people and... Oh yeah. man, what a thing. Yeah. Cool. Very cool suggestion. Yeah, I stuff. look forward to uh, watching yeah. this. Yeah. Well, hey, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to subscribe to the show notes, get into the comments for each episode or consider supporting the show directly and maybe even move us towards that 2000 subscriber bonus where we're going to turn on the YouTube channel, please visit thegraynado.com. Music throughout is Siesta by Jazzar via the free music archive. And we leave you with this quote from Soren Kierkegaard who said, Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. <laughs>